to say yes sir and then the bible goes on to say eh hey, hey, if you are obedient you are calling the bible alaba shake bredo sokolo hey hallelujah ah no let's do this thing give me first peter chapter 3 So here's the thing. When it comes to righteousness, the first thing you need to understand is righteousness is a gift that you did not qualify for. It's a gift. Um, Ephesians chapter number 2 verse 8. Righteousness is a gift. <clears throat> Thank you, Burb. So righteousness is uh, righteousness is a gift. You can cry. Eh? Okay, so righteousness is a gift that um, you do not work for, but it is given to you. So that's uh, what's the scripture? Ephesians chapter number two, verse eight. Righteousness is a gift. Now think of it this way: you do not work for a gift, right? Uh-huh. All you have to do is be there and you are given. So we don't work for gifts. And righteousness is one of those things. Now listen to this. And this is important for uh, for some of you to also listen. Tendai, you need to hear this for one reason. Um, and uh, uh, Because there was a discussion you guys had on understanding righteousness. And I'm going to touch on something that's very important. Now, there's no one who's more righteous than the other. Because according to Romans chapter number 5, righteousness is a gift. So no one has received any greater righteousness than the other person. Also, according to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verse 21, the Bible says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that through him we might become the righteousness of God. So there was an exchange. So it's not something you work for. Righteousness is something you receive because it's a gift. And the Old Testament, when you read the book of Leviticus, explains it very well. What they used to do was, when they sinned, they would get a lamb or a goat And they would lay their hands on it to symbolize the exchange of the sin with the innocence. So their sin would get into the the goat or the sheep. And then the innocence of the sheep or the goat would come on them. 
so that the, the goat or the bull that's now sinful by virtue of transference could be killed in their place. Because what the principle says is the, the, the soul that sins shall die. But since our lives are greater than the lives of the animals, they die in our place. And this is the definition of the greatness of the love of God because all those things were a type and a shadow of the Lord Jesus. In other words, Jesus Christ considered his life as less as an animal's and ours great. So Jesus Christ dying in our place means he reduced his life to the life of an animal so that we could have his life. Ha, that's powerful. I don't know what you think, but that's very powerful. And that's a gift. <clears throat> that's a gift. And that's love demonstrated right there. And so the same righteousness that Pastor Daniel has is the same righteousness that uh, uh, Mukuni has at Deaconess. Uh, thing has it's the same righteousness that we all have no one is righteous than the other now there's no such thing as growing in righteousness there's no such thing as growing in righteousness but you can grow in your understanding of righteousness the fact that you've grown in your understanding of righteousness and you know what it means and then you act appropriately in consonance with your righteousness does not mean you have grown your righteousness it just means you understand it and you can work with it better because you cannot become any more righteous today than you were yesterday because righteousness is constant. It doesn't grow. But your understanding of it can grow. And you, you can grow it. Uh, 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 Paul calls it in the skill of righteousness. In, in Hebrews chapter 5. Okay. That's very important. Number one, it's a gift. Number two, it does not increase. N neither does it reduce. <laughs> It's a gift. You also cannot, you also cannot, you also cannot disqualify yourself from something you did not qualify yourself for. That is to mean you cannot disqualify yourself from righteousness because in the first place you did not qualify yourself for it. Somebody qualified you. And that is the power of grace. Now, a lot of people may think, oh, wow, does it mean that people can just sin anyhow? Because that's, that's different. That's a whole lot of issues. You want to sin, you sin and go to hell. But, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, when you truly receive the nature called righteousness, you begin to grow into it into your understanding of it rather. 
or what loosely we can call growing into it, but technically you cannot grow. Your righteousness cannot grow. You begin, look, do you know why your righteousness cannot grow? Let me explain this. Uh, let me make it easier because I seem to be explaining a lot of principle without making it a bit easier. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verse 17, uh, 21. Amanda, would you love to uh, read it? Yes. So it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you know do you do you know what it means to become the righteousness of God? So if somebody asks the question, is God righteous? Then you said yes. Then they asked you what's the proof? Then you said yourself. Because you are the righteousness of God according to the Bible. By the way, this is not me talking, it's the Bible. You can't grow any greater than being the righteousness of God. This is it. It never gets better. Your understanding in it can grow. But you are the righteousness of God. That's it. You see that? That's it. But here's what I really want to bring to your attention, which is also quite important. In righteousness is freedom. In righteousness is freedom. Freedom freedom from sin and freedom towards righteousness. And that's a consciousness. Uh, let me show you something interesting. Ah, this is powerful. Now, you, you, uh, you, you guys from, okay, now let me say that, let me not say this. So, I want you to look at now Galatians chapter 5, verse, so remember, I want you to put in mind that you became the righteousness of God, right? Mm -hmm. When you just meditate on that line, that you are the righteousness of God, something will click in your brain. <laughs> Something will click, mm -hmm. something amazing. Now, I want you to look at uh, Galatians chapter number 5, verse um, 20, verse 19. Let's start there. You can read. Amanda. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, and lewdness. Go on. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealous, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. Okay. And those who are Christ, yeah. Okay. So, now, the most interesting part is the ending of the description of the fruit of the Spirit. It says, against such there is no law. This is so important. It says, against such there is no law. Against what? Against the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace. No one will come with a law against peace. Unless they are the Antichrist. There is no law against love. So if against such there is no law, it means that against the works of the flesh there is a law. So there is a law against envy, there is a law against murders, there is a law against drunkenness, there is a law against all these things, right? And clearly, when you read the Old Testament, it tells you all these laws against these things. This tells you that the law was not made for righteous people. They don't need the law. They are not conscious of the law. Righteous people lose consciousness of the law. Why? Because the law was never in the first place made for the righteous. It was made for fornicators, for murderers, for drunkards. But we who have received the spirit and the fruit of the spirit, we cannot use the law to say do not kill, do not steal, do not. Because that law was never made for the righteous. This is why for us what we are told is against what we have, which is the fruit of the Spirit. There is no law. This means our consciousness is not a sin consciousness. It's a righteousness consciousness. We are not thinking about what we should not do so that we do not offend God. We are constantly thinking, how can we please God better? How can we love our brethren better? How can we serve God better? How can we be more patient? Against such, there is no law. The law was never made for us. It was made for sinners, for the ungodly. Okay, let me, let me actually show this to you. First Timothy chapter 1. Ah, this is powerful. And sometimes the, the sin problem in believers comes as a result of a sin consciousness. The fact that you don't want to sin is what makes you feel like a sinner, although you are not. Look, uh, look at, uh, let's begin with um, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9. Anybody can read it. Who can see it? I'll read. Okay. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for insubordinate, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. See that? It goes on to say for for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. See that? So, mm -hmm. what I've told you is 
knowing this, that the law is not made for righteous people. That's why the Bible told us in Galatians 5, against such there is no law. This is why Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So once you are set free from that law, now here's what sets us free from that law. It's what God does by changing our sinful nature and he puts in us the righteousness of God. If you are the righteousness of God, Lord, what do you need to be taught? Do not kill, do not steal, do not commit fornication. Imagine telling the righteousness of God, do not kill, do not insult your parents, do not do this. Imagine. Some, sometimes in the strongest words, I would say, what an insult. Yeah, because think of it, you are the righteousness of God. So we cannot be telling you, do not kill, do not steal, do not commit fornication. No. Do not lie, do not envy, do not covet your neighbor's husband or wife. That thing that desires to do the wrong thing has been crushed by the righteousness of God in you. So, in legal terms, the law was never meant for you. The law was made for the ungodly who need to be taught, do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery. And it was also given to them not to give them righteousness, excuse me, but to show them that they are unable to obey a holy law and they need a savior to come and obey the whole law without sinning. And when he does it, he will close it and bring another way for salvation, which is not through the obedience of the law, but receiving of the righteousness of the one who righteously obeyed the law, such that when you receive of his righteousness, it is as if you yourself obeyed the whole law. See that? Mm -hmm. And that is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of the New Testament. If you miss this, so this is why I'm telling you that uh, in righteousness, there is freedom to live righteously. And there is freedom to think away from sin. There's, in righteousness, there's freedom to live righteously. In righteousness, there's freedom to serve God without guilt or shame. This is powerful. And any gospel which is contrary to this is a wrong gospel. Now, you notice, you notice this. You notice that does it mean that Christians cannot have ill feelings, they cannot be rude, they cannot be mean. Well, they can be. But here's the thing. Number one, there's a difference between truth and experience. Just because somebody's experience diverts from the truth does not change the truth. For example, the fact that you meet a bad man does not mean there are no good men out there. That you use that one bad person 
to as a yardstick for every man out there. Or if the first time you visited planet Earth, um, let's let's imagine, let's oh let me put it this way: you come to you come to Zambia, Amanda, and I take you to Chimena Lubafu. It's a it's I mean honestly, Omusakanyakombe. It's the name itself sounds like a bad place. <laughs> and I take you there. Don't worry, you don't even need to remember the name. And then after you 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 go to that place, it's 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 not good. You end up concluding that Zambia is a bad place. So you cannot use one experience to judge the rest of the country. In the same way, you cannot, you cannot use experience to determine truth. Truth is greater than experience. And this is also very important. Do not let your experiences change your view of the truth of the word of God. Instead, let the truth of the word of God help you change your experience because that is how it must work. That's how it must work. Let me give you an example. The truth was Abraham was, was blessed and was called to be the father of many nations, right? Mm. But his experience was not according to truth. His experience told him he's growing up, he cannot have a child, he's over age, his wife is 90, and it's been 25 years since God spoke. So there's a conflict between truth and experience. If we are not careful, we can use experience to discredit truth. So the fact that Christians and some Christians could be struggling with uh, leaving their righteousness. So I can hear some noise in the background. I'm just going to mute everybody for now. So the fact that there are some Christians not living right does not mean that they are in the first place the righteousness of God does also not mean that there are no Christians who are living very rightly and according to the word of God, who do not need to be told, do not kill, do not steal, do not commit fornication. Even, even you who could be working on some things, there are some things that if somebody came to tell you, do not murder, it would be so strange to you. Because you're like, it's not in you in the first place. It's, it's not there. But it should be given to those men slayers and people, maybe without condemning them, but maybe people in the prisons, I don't know, who actually committed the, 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 the murders. See? So that's, that's, that's one part you also need to know. That in righteousness, there is freedom to live righteously, to serve God. And the problem with many Christians today is that they are more sin conscious than they are righteousness conscious. So if you're always thinking about how you don't want to do the wrong thing, how you don't want to walk on eggshells, how you don't know but you could have sinned against God, and if you're a Christian, you're just praying that you make it to heaven when Jesus Christ comes. That's wrong also. 
Because a Christian is not a person who's trying to make it to heaven. Why? Because of what the Bible teaches. Can you imagine? I want you to look at this. Can you imagine that the Bible actually says this? Now, when you discover something in the Bible that's like, that like wows you, just say yes, sir. Stop saying, oh, but you know me. I'm full of weaknesses. What? No. Sometimes beginning to agree with, with what the word of God is, what aligns your spirit to be straight. So if you, if you exhort your weaknesses above the word of God, above the descriptions of who you are in the word of God, if you keep being in conflict with the word of God, you have a problem realigning. Because remember the Bible teaches us that, that the word of God is like a mirror. And one purpose of a mirror is to help you look at your image and begin cleaning it up. Not to say, hey, imagine two people are dirty. They both look in the mirror. One person goes, oh my goodness, I need to work on myself. Another person can look at their dirt in the mirror and say, hey, <laughs> I don't think I can clean myself. Me? Ah, no. And they stop right there. See? Same word of God, different interpretations, different results. So now look at First John chapter 4 and verse 18. Who would love to read? Amanda? Yes. Um, Olua was getting ready to read, but she, well, she's already out. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Chapter Okay. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. You see that? The other reason people are afraid of God and afraid of their past is because they have not been made perfect in love. They have not been perfected in their understanding of what the love of God actually means towards their wrongs and their flaws and what that love does to them. That's powerful. Read that again. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he... I can't hear you. I don't know what happened. Are you there? Is it just me? Mami Mwasoba. We can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, I'll read it again. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Gone. We love him because he loved he first loved us. Mm -hmm. If someone says, I so love that's, God. That's, that's important. So there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So when, when the word perfect means, uh, it, it means when we mature, because the word perfect here comes from a word which means maturity. 
So it means when we grow and our love and, and our, our understanding of the love of God towards us matures, we will not be afraid of God. Look, there are people out there who are just thinking that God is like this, like maybe Buddha master, a, a, a Buddhist Tai Chi master with a bald head and a long white beard seated in like smoke glory with a long kimono waiting for them to make a mistake so that he may punish them at the end of the day. Um, and so they are walking constantly in fear, but that's because their understanding of the love of God towards them and what it does in them and for them has not matured. So he says, perfect love casts out fear. Fear involves torment. Let me explain this. When the Bible says fear involves torment, it means the reason why you are afraid is because you are afraid of being tormented by God for the wrong things that you did. And the only reason you are afraid of the torment is because you've not been made perfect in the love of God. Now, I want you to look at verse 17. What does it say? Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. That's, that's powerful. Mm. How many people have you met who are bold in the day of judgment? Like they can't wait for judgment to come. <laughs> How many people don't want to hear that Jesus Christ will be coming tomorrow? How many people want to be very ready before the Lord Jesus Christ comes? Uh, there are very few people you will hear that will tell you they are excited at the coming of the Lord. They can't wait. And the reason is this. The lack of perfection in love is what causes the fear of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Because our understanding of his love towards us has not been perfected. We are saying, hey Lord, give me some 20 years eh? <laughs> before you can come so that I can work on myself. But every time there is fear, it means the love has not been perfected. See, mm -hmm. but then look at this other thing. He says that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Mm -hmm. As at the time you're having boldness in the day of judgment, your understanding of God's love towards you has matured. And then he also gives another reason. Read the part that says because. Because, because as he is, so are we in this world. Does it say, as, because as he is, so are we going to be? No. Does it say, because as he is, so we could also be, probably? No. Does it say, because as he is, are we going to be in heaven? No. Where are we like him? 
So why should be why should we be afraid of someone we are like? See that? So when we do not understand what the love of God does for us and in us. This is what the love of God has done for us now. What the love of God has done for us is that it has made us as he is. Whilst we are in this world, we are like Jesus. No wonder we are the righteousness of God. I mean, you cannot be like Jesus in this world and not be the righteousness of God. Because Jesus Christ was the righteousness of God. He was the walking righteousness of God. Remember what the Bible uh, describes him in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter number 1. It says, in many separate revelations, each of which set forth a portion of the truth and in different ways, God spoke of all to our forefathers in and by our prophets. Then it says, uh, but in the last day, last of these days, he has spoken to us in the person of a son, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, also by and through whom he created the worlds and the riches of space and the ages of time. He made, produced, built, operated, arranged uh, and arranged them in order. Then he says, he is the sole expression of the glory of God, Jesus Christ. And we are like him. That also makes us the expression of the glory of God. Says the light being the outraying radiance of the divine. He is a perfect imprint and very image of God's nature. He says we are like Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is like God, then we are like them. That's why the Bible says he who is uh, is joined to the spirit, is, is joined to the Lord, is one spirit with him. We are one with the Father. We are one with the Son. When you when you when you read um, when you read the book of uh, Romans chapter number five, preferably the NKJV verse thirty, verse uh, Ephesians rather, chapter number five, verse thirty. Look at this talking about Jesus Christ. He says, "For we are members of His body, of His flesh." And of his bone. Wow. We, we are part of him. We are inseparable. We are one with Christ. You see, when some of these things begin to click in your mind, number one, you stop being afraid of sin. Number two, you stop going back to your old offenses. Number three, you will stop reducing yourself to commit sin because you became, begin to realize. You are one with Christ. You are of his you are of his flesh and of his bone and of his blood. Look at that. Look at that. Careful, careful. This is not me. This is the Bible. The amplified says because we are members parts of his body we are parts of his body all these versions keep telling you the same thing let me show you something that will amaze you uh second corinthians do you remember when ananias lied to Okay, when you read, when you read, um, when you read, when you read Acts chapter number 26, and maybe I'll not get to that, but I'll just read 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, verse, maybe let me look at verse, 
uh, 17. Remember the scripture I read to you? It says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We are one spirit with the Lord. When you realize you are one spirit with the Lord, certain things just begin to fall off by virtue of the knowledge. Okay, let me give you an example. If, let's say, uh, Amanda, maybe you were struggling to pay for school fees. Let's imagine you were struggling to make ends meet. And then they brought some DNA tests. Then they told, they, you actually uh, discover that you are related to the queen. You are a very immediate relative. And you'll be having a meeting with her because there are some things that were not told to you when you were young, now you're of age. Certain fears begin to drop off just by that knowledge. Because obviously now you have to be treated like royalty. Some respect has to be accorded to you. You have BBC coming over to interview you. You have people interested. I mean, fears start dropping off. Not so. So just that knowledge that you are one with the Lord, before you even delve into it, just that knowledge that you are one spirit with him, the moment you know that, fear of sin drops off. Because if you are the righteousness of God, then there's no need to fear that you are going to sin. In other words, you become free to live righteously. Secondly, uh, it, it will become really hard for you to sin. Because you know that the Holy Spirit is watching. And also you just know you are royalty. There are just some things you cannot do easily. And so your righteousness, consciousness begins to work in you. Look at this. It says, flee sexual immorality. Everything that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. But here's the point I want to drive home. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God and you are not your own for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, which and, and your spirit, which are God's. So when we say we are members of his body, it's not just your spirit. A lot of people think this is spiritual, your very body, because in this scripture, he includes your body too. This is powerful. Yeah. Look at this. Above he says, uh, in verse 14 he says, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Then he says, uh, this is powerful again. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So when we talk about the body of Christ, we are talking about all the physical bodies that are present on this earth together with all those that have gone ahead of us into glory. We are the body of Christ together. So the body of Christ is not some imaginary body, like some abstract thing. No, we are the body of Christ. You and I individually, severally and corporately, we are the body of Christ. See that? So he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Then he says, 
Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Let me use a, a simpler version. NLT. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. So, look, when, we, when, we, when, we, when you have this knowledge of who you are, there are certain things you will not do, because when you do them, it's like you are, you are also sinning against the body of Christ. And that's what sin does, because you are part of the body of Christ. So should you therefore take Christ and cause him to smoke weed? Should you, therefore, <laughs> should you therefore take Christ and cause him to commit sexual immorality? Should you therefore take Christ and make him start watching porn? Should you therefore take Christ and make him gossip? Should you therefore take Christ and cause him to curse? Should you therefore... You see, he tells them in verse 15, don't you realize, hasn't it yet hit you, that your bodies, or like my lecturer would say, that your bodies are actually parts of Christ. Should a man therefore take his body? And then he said, don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with, with, with her. For the scripture says the two shall become one flesh. But the person who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Therefore, when we become one with him, whatever we do, Christ also does. Let me, let, let me show you, uh, we, will be, we will be afraid of sin because of what it means when we engage in it. It's deeper than going to hell. It's the embarrassment of joining Christ into sin. It's how wrong it is to think of Christ as doing some of those things. Because we are the body of Christ, individually and severally. I'll be closing this. But I want you to look at something very interesting here as I come to a close. If this word doesn't change you guys, You all need a weeping. <laughs> Acts chapter number 26. Verse. So Paul begins to uh, talk about his conversion. All right. And how Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus. Somebody read uh, um, from chapter 26, verse 13. I'll read. About noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions. Go on. We all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Okay, wait. Who are you? Wait. 
This is Paul telling his story and his conversion testimony, right? So, uh, for purposes of context, begin from verse 9. I used to believe that I ought to do something. I could, to, I could to oppose the very name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Shall I go on? Yes, please. Indeed, I did. I did just that in Jerusalem, authorized by leading, by the leading priests. I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. One day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. About noon, your majesty. I was on the road. A light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Okay, you can end there. Now, we've all seen the story of this guy was a murderer because... And a blasphemer, because he, he wanted to cause everybody to curse the name of Jesus, and he was violent, and he was responsible for some of the deaths, like the death of Stephen. Paul was the one in charge of it, until he met the Lord Jesus. He was a murderer turned, uh, turned apostle. But then, uh, what's interesting is how Jesus Christ addressed him. Look at this. What does it say? Read from red. It says, so, so. Why are you persecuting me? Why didn't Jesus Christ say, why are you persecuting the church? I find that interesting. When you read it from the Amplified Classic, it's even, it's even deeper. It's stronger because it uses very strong language. The Bible reads, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice in the Hebrew uh, tongue saying to me, So, so, why do you continue to persecute me to harass and trouble and molest me? Wow. wow. Now, at this, at this time, Jesus Christ had been resurrected and he was in his glory and power that upon his appearance, they all fell down because of the weight of his glory. And yet this very glorious man is complaining about why he is being persecuted. Why didn't he say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you molesting the church? Why? Because Jesus and the church are one. So whatever Paul was doing to the single believers, killing them and frustrating them, he was doing those things to Jesus Christ. That means whatever those Christians do to their bodies, which is wrong, they also do to Jesus Christ. That's powerful. This should give you enough, what we call uh, the fear of the Lord, the reverence, because of who you mean to God. But secondly, it should help you find it easy to live righteously because of who you are. It's not a struggle. Righteousness is a gift. 
You are the righteousness of God. It's not a struggle to do the right thing. But the thing you need to be careful with is the wrong mindset. Because the wrong mindset and lack of knowledge of the things we've discussed can constantly make you feel guilty about the wrong things that you did in the past, about your weaknesses. And this is why the Bible says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not heart. Mm -mm. Your heart has already been transformed. I explain it this way. There, there is a law of inertia in physics. And one, uh, the, the argument that Isaac Newton propagated in the law of inertia was that a body remains in its state of rest or motion until an external force is applied to it, if you remember your physics well. So that means there is, um, there is a, a proclivity, some kind of tendency in bodies, in objects, to resist change. So the fact that change is being resisted does not mean it has not come. And this is how it is also with us believers. There is a tendency to resist change, not out of being like willing to resist the change that has come in our heart, but because we have the same friends, we have the same mindset, we are not listening to the word of God like the way you are listening to me right now. Not everyone has an opportunity to listen to such a detailed explanation and exposure to the scriptures. So there are believers who don't have a mindset like you because no one is teaching them the things I'm teaching you. So they struggle to renew their mind. They struggle to realign and say, okay, Lord, look, I'm your righteousness. I didn't say it, you said it. So yes, sir. I'm like you in this world. I don't have to wait for the by and by. Yes, sir. My past is behind me. Yes, sir. They don't have someone to explain to them the word of God. Remember what we learned yesterday to bring them understanding. The Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth shall do what? Think of it like this. The, you are in prison. The president has signed his prerogative of mercy. You're supposed to come out. But you don't know it. You don't know. How long are you going to be in prison? See? So, knowledge therefore becomes vital. In either thinking you are bound, thinking that you are a sinner, or thinking that you are free to serve God and live righteously, and thinking like a righteous man. The thin line is knowledge. Praise the Lord. Amen. I'm done.